Hello, friends. Welcome to the CNBC podcast, where we explore how Jesus is at work in and around our world. Calvary Monument Bible Church is a body of Christ called by Jesus to love, live, and lead for God's glory, desiring to grow in a greater love for God and a greater love for those he places in our pathways. If you would like to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Monument Bible Church, we would invite you to check us out online at www.calvarymonument.org. I'm Pastor Chris Lenhart, and with us today, we have Coach Anthony Hall. Coach Hall is a friend, he's a colleague, he serves as the athletic director of the Solanco School District. And today, in our podcast interview, Coach Hall will share how he came to know Jesus. He'll talk to us about leading in times of adversity and how we keep athletes focused and ready when we are faced with so many great unknowns. Then we'll pivot our conversation and we'll lean into Coach Hall's diverse background from growing up in the Bronx of New York City to his collegiate and high school basketball coaching and recruiting experiences so that we might talk more deeply about the problems and issues surrounding race that our country is currently facing further exploring how we might be a positive source of needed change. Jesus is at work. Let's hear what he's up to. All right, well, welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Coach Anthony Hall. He is the athletic director of Solanco High School here in Quarryville, Pennsylvania. And Anthony is actually not from this area. So, Anthony, tell us a little bit about where you're from and give us a two-minute uh, testimony story. How did you come to know Jesus? Uh, well, Chris, first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, you're right. I'm not from the area. Um, originally born and raised in the Bronx, New York, um, and just through education and professional experiences found my way out um, to Quarryville. Started off, um, education's always been my background. Um, started off working in, um, in the college area, college coaching, and then from there just Found a couple athletic director jobs and worked worked our way out here to Quarryville, which uh, had a major blessing of the the uh, Solanco AD job coming up, and my wife and I took an opportunity on it and jumped on it. Um, and to be honest with you, it's kind of um, one of the eye-opening experiences I've had with the Lord um, because I was at a school district that was closing, um, and I had no idea what I was going to be doing. And it was probably the first time in my life that I had left it up, and I just said, "Okay, Lord, wherever you want me to go." I didn't search, I didn't internet, I didn't Google, I wasn't job searching, but I knew I was going to need one. Um, and out of nowhere, a buddy of mine sent me a text message and said, hey, Solanco is looking for an AD. And my response, honestly, was, where the heck is Solanco? Um, from not being from Pennsylvania, and we were living in York, PA at the time. Um, we just, you know, I realized I, the first Google I did was the distance, realized it was an hour. Um, and I was like, we can absolutely do that, put my stuff in, and... Um, it just felt right from the first interview. They put me through three interviews, um, and it just felt right. Um, a little background about myself in regards to my journey with the Lord. Uh, born and raised in a Catholic household, um, and I got to a point in my life with my journey that I started asking a lot of questions, uh, especially of my mother. My mother has always been the spiritual one uh, and the um, figure in my, in my house. Uh, my mother and father are still together. They're actually going to be celebrating 50 years on Sunday, the 5th. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. And they, um, but my mother was always prominent about making us go to church and um, trying to keep us on the straight and narrow. 
Um, I started asking a lot of questions, and then when I was in college, I started searching out more. I was still attending church, but um, Pastor Leo Hoare of Springfield College uh, was a Catholic priest, and I started asking him a lot of questions, and he was pushing me to ask more and search and ask more and search, and then fast forward to 2005, 2006. Uh, I am constantly struggling with what my life is, what I'm doing, always trying to search how to make myself better. Um, and I remember it distinctly. I was sitting up in my bedroom while my girlfriend, now wife, Katie, was downstairs watching television. I was upstairs watching Joyce Meyer. Um, <laughs> and Joyce Meyer was doing a sermon. And I can't remember what the sermon was, but at the end of her show, she did an altar call. Mm. Um, and now here I found myself on my knees in my master bedroom crying and sobbing um, and it was the Lord just through her punched me in the heart um, and just said you've been asking enough questions um, it's time for you to start understanding what I need from you um, got saved in my living room wow through an altar call I mean in my bedroom went downstairs sat on the couch and Katie kept looking at me going what's wrong with you and I just kept looking I don't know I don't know um, and from there there's just been a lot of only God, only Jesus moments mm. um, that have happened to pave the path for where I've been now and what I still continue to do. Yeah. It's just been amazing that every now and then you can just look and laugh and just say, mm. God had total control of that. Mm. Total control of it. It's wonderful. And and once you came to the Quarterville area, to me it's been amazing to watch and see how the Lord's been faithful to put mentors in your life. Mm -hmm. I, I, I look at uh, guys like Ken Walton, yep. and I know your involvement now, you and your family attend Wesley Church in Quarryville. And, yes, and obviously, uh, the Lord has been faithful to continue in your discipleship and your spiritual growth mm -hmm. since that day. And so it's been phenomenal to see how he's moved in your uh, life you, from that time. You need to put yourself in that category, too, because that's yeah. where we met. I mean, yeah. coaching football, yeah. uh, you know, but also being at Wesley. Mm -hmm. um, we started attending and we met right away. And I, I consider you one of my mentors as well, too, mm -hmm. because when it comes to understanding my walk and where I'm supposed to be, mm -hmm. I still to this day struggle with it. And I ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the things that we need to do as Christians is constantly have a conversation with the Lord and just be asking questions yep. a lot. And whether it's to pave our path, pave our kids path, um, to open doors for people who are in our life. Um, I just think it's a constant asking questions, and it's always good for me to also be able to have a voice to go to mm. and just say, hey, you know, Chris, here's a question, or, you know, Ken, here's a question mm. that I'm struggling with. And I know you guys have had a more in-depth walk. You, you've kind of, your, your lives have been surrounded by the Lord your whole life, mm. and I'm still playing catch-up. Mm. Um, so it's always been nice um, to have mentors in my life that have been able to ask them questions. And even when you guys haven't had the answers, mm. what I've always appreciated is you haven't sugarcoated that and said, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. Pray on it, but here's something for you to read. Mm -hmm. And you always haven't just an ended the conversation with pray on it. Right. You've always said, add it to your prayers, but here's a book you might want to read on. Mm -hmm. Here's something you might want to research on. You've always given me, and being in an education background, mm -hmm. it's like i got to find the answers. Yeah. You know, and we don't always do. Right. Um, but the mentors, you're right, have been fantastic. That's awesome. I I think it's been amazing this last season of, of life to look back over the last three months. Obviously, the Lord is doing something significant in the world right now. Uh, yes. It's shocking. So here you are. You are an 
administrator. You're the athletic director at yep. Solanco High School. Yes, sir. And you are two weeks into, if we paint this picture a little bit, you're you're about two to three weeks into your spring sports season. Yep. Ready to get rolling, maybe in your first week of scrimmages, games, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, COVID hits and the schools are closed because of the pandemic. What was the most immediate and biggest change that you faced when all of that happened? Was a complete 360 on my daily schedule. <laughs> you know, being an athletic director, I'm one of those guys and uh, that uh, I'm in the building every day at 7 a.m. and I don't leave until the event's over. Um, so here you go. And ironic that you say the scrimmages, we just had a scrimmage the day before on March 12th. And then it was ironically Friday the 13th um, that we got, I got the email from Dr. Bliss um, that schools are starting to look at closing for a week. So we were on the horn all day long up until about one o'clock on what we were going to do with practice after school if we had closed. Mm -hmm. That was the first day we started focusing on. Um, so I had to immediately reach out to all the coaches and say, you may or may not have practice today, and here's why, and lay the groundwork. So when we closed on Friday the 13th, the plan was go home after school, no practice, no practice on Saturday. You cannot come back to the building or the district until we reopen, and that was the plan for a week. And then by Tuesday, it was pushed to two weeks. And then at the end of those two weeks, it was pushed to a month. And then it was, boom, we were closed. So a lot of the questions that were being asked both were from the coaches. Some of the athletes were emailing me and their parents. And then also other athletic directors. We were mm -hmm. like, do we go into our schedule and start canceling games? Or do we postpone them till May? Because the schedule inevitably ends May. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at, we're probably going to lose the whole month of April. And if we lose the month of April, then the season's pretty much uh, a wash. There's really not much we can do. Um, but a lot of the ADs just had, it was quite like a lot, of, a lot of other professions that are out right now. Daily question after question after question <laughs> after question. And the most frustrating thing was being so used to asking a question. Okay, you're watching the weather report. Hey, the game's going to be postponed. The weather's coming. Can you go tomorrow? Yes, we can go tomorrow. Reschedule. Boom. Here was... Are we rescheduling for April 1st? It's mm -hmm. only March 13th. Are we rescheduling for April 3rd? We don't know. So just put it on postpone and put TB TBD. TBD. Mm -hmm. So the biggest adjustment was looking at an athletic schedule that constantly said to be determined, to be determined, to be determined. What do you say to your senior athletes in the moment? I mean, you are a very hands-on athletic director. So yes, you know all of your athletes personally. You've had conversations with them. A lot of them feel very comfortable in your office. Yep. I can't imagine the relationship you have with some of these seniors that you have grown up with over the last four years of really your ministry at Solanco High School. Yep. They come to you broken. Their last opportunity really to, to be in a high school sport, maybe to earn a scholarship, yep. is taken from them. What do those conversations sound like? What did they look like? Well, it, it, it started Monday of that week. Um, kids of all grades ninth through 12th started popping by my office and just asking coach what's it look like like I don't want to lose my senior year or you know we're we're probably the baseball team was probably geared to have a pretty good year hmm. uh you know Michael May is one of those seniors that Michael May had already signed his letter of intent to go to East Stroudsburg to play baseball um awesome awesome young lady young man great family um you know, I seen him in the hallways one day and he was just like coach am I gonna have a senior year and I was just like I'm sorry, I can't answer that right now. We just just take one day at a time. We'll figure it out. Um, and that was the most heart wrenching part for me was not being able to answer them. 
you know, and I'm one of those that even right now, kids are asking the questions about the fall. And I've really tried to hone in my coaches to be, do not make any promises that you can't keep. Because the last thing we need is to start getting those middle of the ground athletes that their their high school career revolves around athletics. Mm. And we have a lot of them. I was one of them when Mm -hmm. I was in high school. That, you know, they work hard at everything they do because they want to play. We can't build them up so much to be like, oh, the county's now in the green, athletics is good to go, blah, 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 and then maybe September 1st where back in the red. And now the fall athletes don't have a season again. And what do you say to those kids when we built them up to tell them we're going to be okay? So my my big message to a lot of my coaches right now is don't make promises. Mm -hmm. We're allowed to start doing some things July 1st. So we're just going to do condition. We're going to get the kids back at it. They haven't done anything in four months. Um, I've had some email conversations with some athletes that were seniors, and I'm just like, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry this is what your year looked like. Um, We had a couple of kids that were really banking on having a very good senior year um, and possibly moving on to college because of this season, and it didn't happen. And whether it was baseball, softball, or track, um, we had a lot of kids – um, get devastated and you know even some coaches too I mean Jen mm. McDowell mm. takes over track program yeah <laughs> first year head coach kids were the numbers were fantastic mm-hmm. she done, she had done so much stuff to prepare for her first year as a head coach and then boom it's taken from her she's a fabulous coach and I yeah I, I felt so bad for her because I know how excited she was for that opportunity and, and just to see yeah. her Facebook posts mm-hmm. um, of we should have been at CV today. We mm-hmm. should have been at Cocalico today. And mm-hmm. just to, to, to not see the words, but know mm-hmm. the feeling behind the Facebook mm-hmm. post that she was devastated because mm-hmm. we had one of the best, you know, as a former track mm-hmm. coach, we had one of the best springs we've had in a long time where we wouldn't have had to postpone any track event. We would, I would have had to, Chris, I would have had to postpone. If I watched the calendar, I would have had to postpone and reschedule two baseball games. Oh, man. From the whole season, and that never that happens. never happens. <laughs> so it was almost uh, like comical that yeah. we're going through this and then Mother Nature is laughing. Yeah. And saying, oh, well, it, it is what it is. Um, uh, it just, the word sorry probably couldn't have come out of my mm. mouth more, but it also, I wish I could have done more. We know that we're not in these seasons or in these positions in these seasons by accident. The Lord's placed us here for a reason. As you have had some time and maybe not enough really to right. unpack what's happened was there anything from your past that the Lord had brought into your life, maybe even before that you knew him, that was helping prepare you to lead in this time of life through this season? Is there anything you could pinpoint or any adversities that you went through uh, as a young man or as a, a student or athlete on your own that you could say, hey, the Lord really used that to, to help me? Um, that's a great question. Um, I don't think anything to this magnitude. Hmm. Um, that it was a constant unknown hmm. um, because I think I think as as human beings one of the biggest fear that kind of eclipses all of us is the fear of the unknown hmm. mm-hmm. and one experience I go back to would be New Hope Academy hmm. that the school was closing and we had fought for an entire year to prove to keep our charter school open hmm. um, the kids were a mess the last two weeks of knowing that 
the last day of school was boom, and then when September rolled around, you weren't coming back to New Hope. But they had somewhere to go. Like, they all knew they were either going back to their, um, they were going back to their uh, homeschool district, because we were a charter school, so we had kids coming from all, in the city of York, we had kids from William Penn, um, Northeastern, York Suburban, we had kids from all of the different districts. They all knew where they were going come September. Right. So that question was answered. Um, but to have to work with those kids because of a place that they actually loved coming to every day was being ripped away from them. Um, and then you had all the faculty members, the same thing. Um, and that's what I meant by that was a position. That was my last position before coming here. And I just trusted the Lord, and I just felt like going in every day. That's what I had to do is I had to guide the kids that don't worry about tomorrow. Just enjoy today. Enjoy being here. We'll figure out what tomorrow is when tonight rolls around. But right now, enjoy being a student at, at, at New Hope. Um, we have nothing else to do but know that we're fighting to keep our doors open. But don't be so overwhelmed with, I'm not coming back. Because that answer's not answered yet. And then when it finally was, then it was, we got to keep the pieces together. Hmm. We got to keep them together, seeing the finish line. Hmm. Our kids here this year, because it was so unknown, was where is the finish line? That's right. You know, they're so used to being brick and mortar, getting on a bus. We're all in our routine. Mm -hmm. And people who were all creatures of habit. So now all of a sudden your routine is messed up. And now we have to adjust on the fly where we're now virtual. And everybody's got to be online. And there's a lot of kids that don't don't work that real well being online and learning that mm -hmm. way. A kid needs to be in front of a teacher with his classmates around him. And it was just like, where's the end? Mm -hmm. And then when the school was shut down for the year, it was, okay, refocus again. Mm -hmm. How do we keep the kids moving through to make sure they get decent grades for their whole fourth quarter? Mm -hmm. And it just was one thing after another. And we're still going through it. Right. I think that's been... I had a little bit of experience going through the situation at New Hope, but right now it's been like, it really has. When people say it's been unprecedented, it really has been unprecedented because there's no finish line. It's continuing to change. It's continuing to evolve. And right now I've really got myself focused and try to, even the kids I still talk to today, I'm like, just focus on today. What are you going to do today to make sure tomorrow is better because you're a better person? And we just want answers, and it's been the struggle right now. It's hard to give answers in this season, absolutely, absolutely. and in all the is. context, in the church context, in the school context. I'm, I'm sure it's been one of the one of the most difficult things in leading in this situation. So, we're looking forward to something that is still largely unknown. Yeah, obviously, yes. we we don't really know what the fall is going to look like for for public schools, private schools, for athletics. Really, even that that picture isn't clearly clear. It's still a little blurry, uh, a lot blurry, maybe. Yes, yes. Um, are there any opportunities or transformations that you see that could be potential for really good things coming out on the other side of this for sports in general and for extracurriculars in general? I mean, it may be hard to try to think about that now, but I'm wondering what are the opportunities for growth and transformation that you would anticipate for high school athletics on the other side of this? Well, I'll be honest. And some people might take this kind of comical, like, oh, are you serious? But at the same time, in my profession, it's something I struggle with on an everyday basis. My real hope is right now that when we get back out to the playing fields, there's a lot less 
not from the athlete side of it or from the coaching side of it, because I'm a real big believer in athletics teach kids an immense amount about life. Mm-hmm. Well, my hope is that the people in their support systems take continue to take it serious, but to a point. Mm-hmm. I'm really hoping that when we get back under the lights on a Friday night, the people sitting in the audience just enjoy the game. And just enjoy the fact that there's kids playing again. Mm. And it's a kid's sport. Kids are going to make mistakes. The coaches are going to make mistakes. The officials are going to make mistakes. So for me, it's a powerful tool as the athletic director that if I have somebody up in the audience just saying a little bit too verbal, stating their opinion, it's easy for me now to be able to go up and sit next to them and go, three months ago, we didn't know if the kids were going to be doing this. Can you just let them play? Hmm. Because let's not take it so serious. They made a mistake, or you might not agree with what the coach just called, and that's fine too. But sit up here and enjoy the game, please. Hmm. Because everybody's missing it. (laughs) Everybody's missing it. And when it's back, I'm just really hoping that we take that next level of a little sportsmanship Hmm. where we're treating our opponents, spectators, twice as good as we usually do. Mm-hmm. We're treating the kids on the field twice as good as we normally do. And we just, you know, we kind of remember that all the time. And we just, we take a little bit more self-accountability. Like, you know, this, this in all in the bigger scheme, I know my son loves competing, but I'm just going to sit back and watch him compete. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to throw my two cents out at the coaches, the kids, the officials, because when the game is over, I still get to wrap my arms around my son. Mm-hmm. Or my daughter, and it was a game. Mm-hmm. It was just a game. Mm-hmm. So for me in my profession, that's really what I'm hoping is that people just remember what we've lost, so that we get it back. You just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. One of my mentors says, "Just be thankful. Just yes. be man. If we all just live with a little bit more gratitude every day, and we just thought before we spewed something out of our mouth or said something, if we couched it with." is this next statement displaying my thankfulness and my gratitude mm-hmm. or is it displaying something else? Yes. You know, and man, absolutely. What great wisdom. And, and it's funny you say that right now because I'm, I'm currently reading a book and the author's name is slipping my brain right now. I'm currently reading a book that says the title of it is, Hey, you, your life is waiting for you. Hmm. I believe that's the title of it. Um, and it's basically the whole premise behind the book is gratitude. And, that we as human beings, whatever state we're in mentally, whether it's gratitude, sorrow, we're vibrating, we're vibrating energy. And what I love about it is that the first chapter was all about when you keep track of being grateful for the things that you have in your life, you can't help but put yourself in a positive state. And when you put yourself in a positive state, whether people want to admit it or not when they come in contact with you, it rubs off on them. So for me right now, I've been challenging myself to not the pity side of it, not be, oh, I want to go to work today. I want to do this. I want. I've been grateful that I get to wake up every single day and watch my kids get ready for school rather than having to be at a building before they, before they even get out of bed. Hmm. Um, I've been able to make breakfast for them, which I haven't been able to do in probably two years. Um, I've been... So grateful for the house and the community that I've been blessed with. 
Um, I'm grateful. I, I laugh. I just try to say, hey, Lord, you know what? I'm, I'm grateful that my car is under lease right now and I have so many miles banked away because I haven't been using it. You know, and I just, I, I've been trying to, and again, I, I'm trying to read more. Um, I'm not very good at it, but I've been trying to read more. And this book just kind of happened. I was listening to a podcast and the, the person on the podcast mentioned the book. And it's no mistake. Mm -hmm. I ordered the book. I'm reading it. Um, and I, it's just, when you said that, it's the first thing I thought of. It was mm -hmm. like, yeah, the first chapter was about being in a state of gratitude, mm -hmm. being in a state of being thankful, mm -hmm. because it leads to not not only a better feeling about yourself, but it also helps other people. It helps other people, but it also helps open doors, mm -hmm. because there might be somebody struggling that we don't know that they're struggling, and because you're in a better vibrating state, you're in a good mood, and you might say two things to them. It might even be hello, hey, you, your dress looks great today. That might then look at them and now look at you as that might be somebody I can talk to because you put yourself in a very thankful state. Right. And I just, when you said that, I'm just like, yeah, that's the premise of the book I'm reading right now. I, I, I think it'd be fabulous if our whole country would just take a big dose of gratitude every single day when they wake <laughs> up. And I think about it, I look at our country and what we're going through right now. We just talked about opportunity for change and we're talking about gratitude and we want to switch gears a little bit. Um, and really, I'm excited to hear from you about this because you grew up in the Bronx. You grew up in a very diverse part of our country in New York. Uh, I'm sure you had friends of many different cultures and yes, many sir. different races. And so here we are, and our country has an incredible opportunity before it to finally maybe do some things a little differently, to finally maybe change in light of the adversity that we're facing that has been brought on by the George Floyd incident and what happened. Personally, why do you believe that our country continues to find itself in this position over and over again? Where do you think we've gone wrong? Well, I'm just a, I'm just a high school athletic director <laughs> from a small little, small little school in Lancaster. Um, and we were talking about before we came on air that everybody's got a voice. Mm -hmm. And everybody's got to find their voice. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I think, I think the reason why we still struggle today is because of the struggle over power. Everybody wants to be right. Everybody wants to be the lead dog in whatever it is that they feel is necessary to lead in. Um, and everybody wants their opinion. Not necessarily right or wrong, but they want their power and their opinion. And personally, again, these are just my personal thoughts. Um, I do have a what I like to say, a very vast background. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in the Bronx. Family moved us out of there, and the only reason why my mother and father moved us out of there is I'm the middle of three boys, um, and I remember it clear as day, 12 years old. Uh, my father coming home from work. He, was a, um, he worked for Sears, and he was driving a truck, and he came home, walked upstairs, and looked at my mother and said, hey, you got to make a choice. We either move or one of your kids is going to end up dead or in prison. Because he came home, and my older brother, who's four years older than me, was, I'm 12, he's now 16, he's hanging out on the street corner with 25-year-olds. So it was, you know, and although we fought it and we didn't like it, probably one of the best decisions my parents had ever made. Um, but now it starts with the background for me, where if I would have stayed in the Bronx, I would have gone to, I was going to um, PS14 in the Bronx, and in the city system, almost all the schools are either named after somebody or they're a number. Mm. Um, 
and I, I was at PS14, I was supposed to go to IS192, and then after IS192, I was, going, I was supposed to go to um, Lehman High School in the Bronx. And if I would have stayed on that path, then I would have graduated from Lehman High School. My graduating class would have been over, um, I think it was 890, 890 kids. So we now, we pack up and we move to Greenwood Lake, New York. And the only thing I knew about Greenwood Lake, New York, years after was I read it as a, it was a vacation town for Dean Smith, North Carolina. <laughs> he had a house in, in Greenwood Lake and he would go vacation there all the time. Um, here I am moving from the Bronx where we're living on the third story of an apartment house, top floor. Uh, I walk up the block and you're on Throgs Neck Avenue, which is city streets, city blocks. Um, everything you could think of seeing, you see. To a small town with one traffic light, no building over two stories. And I'm in the car asking my dad, where are you moving us? What are we doing? Um, and now I went to Greenwood Lake Middle School on to Tuxedo High School, and I graduated with 62. <laughs> we had one, two minority students in our class. Two. And I was very good friends with both of them. Um, when I first left the Bronx and went up to Greenwood Lake, um, I was labeled as a wigger. Hmm. Because I had moved out of the Bronx, and at that time, baggy clothes were, were in. Right. Um, you know, I wore my jeans a little baggy. I wore baggy T-shirts, and I wore my hat on backwards. Mm. My hat on backwards was a direct relation of Ken Griffey Jr. Mm. <laughs> and his father. You know what I mean? But I got a label immediately because I was a city kid that apparently was a white young man who was trying to dress like he was black. And I didn't get that term. Um, mm. And it was unfortunate to me because right away I was like, so I'm being labeled. How, remember how old you were at I that 12. time? 12 years old 12 and years already old. a label in this community. You just moved in and and obviously, you know, that's a, a label that takes a very derogatory word mm -hmm. and, and just changes the first letter of it. But already, I mean, at that age, you're experiencing it. And it was funny because for a school that small, it was only one or two kids. Mm -hmm. You know, it was one or two kids that wanted to pick on every new kid that came along. Um, and I got some great friends and um, I keep in touch with them on Facebook and stuff but it was an eye-opener as I look back on it now with my experience because then I go from big city to little country town um, and then I graduate and I go on to college and college is so diverse you know and then I graduate and I go on to another college and it's so diverse um, and I'm, I'm playing college basketball um, I have friends all over the campus and I don't ever think twice about it. It's just, we're just people. We're just college kids. We're just, so I never had a, whatever your background is, I'm, I come from the mentality that I didn't know any better. You know what I mean? Like, Sean Brown, still to this day, we keep in touch, one of my teammates, um, African-American young man, very, very intelligent, um, does a lot for his community in Rochester, New York, funny, just we didn't hang out at a gym. His life went one way, my life went another. But when we came into the gym, we would share stories. We shared lockers right next to each other. We would laugh. We would joke. Um, we were brothers. We had, I have a text chain with all of my teammates from Brockport, and we call it the Brockport Brotherhood. Um, and when we're struggling with something, we text the whole strand, and everybody's jumping on each other going, no, do you remember this time when this and that? And we share stories left and right. But it's like I never thought that's just Sean. I never mm. thought of anything different. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, and then when I left 
college, and I started coaching at the college ranks, I would go into an inner city home, or I would go to a suburban home, or I would go to a country home, and I would sit down and I'm recruiting young men, whether it was an, uh, an Asian kid, a black kid, a Hispanic kid, a white kid. I didn't think anything of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I tell the story all the time. I had a kid from um, Simon Gratz in Philadelphia. And if you know basketball, Simon Gratz is a powerhouse when it comes to basketball. They used to be. And I had a kid named Jason Hickenbottom. 6'4", jump out of the gym. I was trying to recruit him for Slippery Rock. Would have turned our program around. Young black man living right in the city of Philadelphia. I didn't think anything of it. To drive in, pick up him, his mother, his father, drive him all the way out to Slippery Rock, put him in a hotel for a night, have him spend a weekend, and drive him all the way back out. And the part of white coach recruiting a black athlete never even crossed my mind because I'm a basketball coach recruiting athletes. It was the same thing as driving to York and recruiting Nate Langford, a shooting guard from, from West York. White kid drove out, met with his family. They came out for a visit. It, and I just think that as we evolve, and I use as my own personal experiences, I try to get people to think about not thinking about it. Hmm. When I walked in and I applied for New Hope Academy, when I became the dean of students and the athletic director for New Hope Academy, I remember walking in for my interview, and the gentleman who was interviewing me asked me, did you find the place okay? Because it, it was on West King Street. And if you know anything about West King Street in New York, there's a section of West King Street that's a troubled area, and there's a section where it's pretty good. The school was in on the border. It was a troubled neighborhood. Um, I parked my car like six blocks up, and I walked down. And I got into the building, and he was like, did you find any problem? I said, no, 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 I, I parked up on... Um, on Princess Street, and he looked me dead in his eyes got big, and he's like, you walked? And I'm like, yeah. So maybe it's a piece of me being naive. I didn't think about it. Mm. You know, here I am, a six foot four white guy, bald head, walking through the inner city. I didn't think about it. Um, and I go through five or six years at New Hope, and I was the minority in New Hope because all the kids were African-American or Hispanic. The majority of them. I think 90% of the kids there were of that descent. Um, and we preached love every day with these kids. We had a morning routine that they had to do to get into class. And we would read their faces. And if they were having a bad morning, they would not even go to class. We would pull them and they would meet with a, what we call paraprofessionals, which would be a person just to get them to talk. Did you not get any breakfast before you got here? Was there an argument at your house? Did you even sleep at home? We just try to find, uncover the layers, uncover the layers. Unco- and it took a while, you know. But even some of my basketball players, Anthony Morgan, intelligent young man. Um, he is going to make a career for himself. He's right now an assistant assistant basketball coach for uh, Harrisburg, uh, Penn State Harrisburg. He's got his master's. He's just in super intelligent. But when I met him as a freshman, attitude, I borderline derelict. Because he just thought he was right with everything. Um, and we beat heads as a coach and a dean of students. But when I text that kid now at the end of the night, before I say goodnight, I say, hey, love you, Aunt. Love you too, coach. Because we just talked and we just communicated and we battled and we, it was okay. We had our ups and downs. And I don't think we ever looked at, he's white, he doesn't understand me. You listened. 
Correct. You, you empathized. You gave them a, a safe place to be able to share the struggles that they were experiencing instead of pretending like they should, quote-unquote, behave a certain way or be a certain way. When, when there was something wrong and you could see there was something wrong, you dug into it and you took the time yep. to, to be a friend. Yeah. And, and, and I, really... a lot of the kids in that building, that's what they needed. Hmm. They needed a role model. They needed somebody to listen. And I think that go, goes back to... And this is one of those rabbit trails that we had talked about mm-hmm. getting off on a tangent. But Sorry. that was one of the things that I, I, I think really helped me be one of the leaders in that building was I wasn't in a struggle over power. I never, the kids would joke around and say, you're so fearful. And I, I mean, you're, you put so much fear in kids. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because of the way you carry yourself. And I would try to teach them. I just carry myself with confidence. And I have a straight face because I want you to know that I'm serious. But when a kid was breaking down, it wouldn't be any different for me to sit in my office with him for two and a half hours and let him cry. And then try to get him back in class to let him understand that while you're in the building, you're safe. But you're better than the situation you're going on right now. And I think that's one of the problems of our whole society as a whole is we do too much talking and we don't do enough listening. We don't do enough getting to know the person that we supposedly disagree with. Hmm. And even if some of our so-called leaders, and I say so-called leaders because a lot of our older leaders that are in charge right now don't try to change. Hmm. They don't. They believe they have the answers. They believe they want it done this way. And they push their agenda. And now, again, I'll go back to this is my own personal philosophy. Um, I'm registered as an independent. And I have voted Democrat. I have voted Republican. Because I listen. I try to understand what both sides are about. I try to see what both sides' principles align with my philosophy of living and how I want my children to be raised. And that's what side I'll vote for. Because there's some changes they're trying to make that I think would be good. And some changes that they're trying to look at that are like, whoa, whoa. That, that needs to be uncovered a little bit more. Mm. Um, and, and I think going back to the answer, the original answer is the power thing. There's too many people right now that in politics that are getting their positions because they can pay for their position. Mm. Mm. I, I look at the uh, Secretary of Education right now. The Secretary of Education is the wife of a billionaire who runs Amway. And a big donor to, to President Trump's situation. And she ends up Secretary of Education, not having ever gone through the steps of education to become in that position. Um, I, as an educator, I would tell you straight out that, and a lot, a lot of my teaching friends. So if you're out there, please don't yell at me right now when I make this comment. <laughs> um, I wish we would go back to the old way of teachers having to teach for ten years, not three, to get tenure, or a superintendent having to be teacher. Dean of students, assistant principal, principal, assistant superintendent, superintendent. There still is a lot to be said for earn your way to the top. You have to have all those experiences because only the superintendent, and I, I feel blessed to have a superintendent like Dr. Bliss at, at, at Solanco because he has those experiences. He's taught in the classroom. Right. It's hard for a superintendent who doesn't have year, my philosophy, my opinion, who doesn't have years of experience standing in front of kids and controlling the classroom, to be able to sit down and have a conversation across the table with teachers in the union 
because they have no idea what they're going through. Sure. Whether it's in any city school or a suburban school or a country school or a charter school. Right. You you have to live a life with it full of experiences to be able to relate to the person across the table. And if you can't relate, don't pretend you can. Hmm. If they ask you a question and you don't have an answer to, you go, you know what? That, I've never experienced that in my life. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. It, that's really good. It, and that's humbling. I mean, it's disarming. It's humbling to just admit, I don't know. I've never had that experience. Uh, to hear you talk about uh, your time at New Hope, right? Yep. You had mentioned that you were in the minority when you were there in that culture, that you were in the minority. I remember uh, our first trip to Haiti. Uh, for us, that's that's where I had my first big minority experience mm-hmm. where it was very, very different and the shoe was on the other foot. And I remember thinking to my wife, uh, talking to her about this and actually saying, wow, now I can just barely scratch the surface of understanding yes. what my friends of other cultures experience in the United States. Correct. And that's just barely scratching the surface. I mean, they experience it at a much more deeper level. They live here and, mm-hmm. and, and function here. So here, here you and I are. Uh, I'm, raising, uh, I'm raising black children in a predominantly white community. Yep. You are uh, coaching as an athletic director in a predominantly white school district. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both, I believe, would share the passion of wanting to see this conversation continue to grow mm-hmm. and this change continue to happen. We don't want to see this stop. Uh, we want there to be positive change in these areas. In our platforms, in our positions, and I, I'm going to specifically just ask you, as an athletic director, what are you able to do in your position to help educate students and help to um, see this discussion and dialogue continue so that there might be change down the road? Um, that's an outstanding question and it's probably something that I struggle with right now because there's a piece of me that feels like I've always excelled in the inner city environment Um, whether it be running a school for juvenile probation kids and trying to get those kids to understand you're one step from jail or one step going back home um I've excelled in the area of trying to be the replacement father figure for kids um, that may have an adult figure not at home. Um, And I think one thing now in the community that I'm in now that I would be able to rely on my experiences would be is get individuals to the table. Not necessarily as the mediator, but also be able to open the eyes of So if I'm sitting at the middle of the table and there's a person talking about wanting to move forward with some kind of changes and the other person is kind of deflecting what they're saying, I could try to help open their eyes to be like, that's because you don't understand what they've been through. It was the same thing when I was at New Hope and I had a young man or a young lady that would start talking about not having dad at home. I didn't know what they were talking about. I mean, I opened the thing by saying my parents have been married for 50 years. Was my father always there? No. He was a work, workaholic. But I have my work ethic. I thank him every day for my work ethic. Um, but I had people to rely on, like a, uh, a John Ayers or, or a Jay Beard, who had to go through that experience. Two gentlemen, that is two friends of mine that we communicate on Facebook, and we try to get a yearly reunion with New Hope people back together. Um, because we've all shared experiences. I mean, John tells me all the time that, I learned so much from you just by watching you. 
And I'll tell him, I learned so much from you just from listening to you. Listening to you talk to kids that were going through the same situation you were in. Being able to eyeball the kids that were going down that trail that John had gone down young in his life but turned his life around that doesn't want a kid to go down. I look at it like, have I ever been in trouble with the law? Nope. Because my father taught me to respect the law. Have I ever seen experiences of the law overstepping their power and their badge? Yep. Several times. Um, do I think that is one of the issues with law enforcement right now that needs to be communicated about? Not the police officers that are doing their job. Not the, the ones that are out there for the right reasons. Like my cousin Christina is a police officer in New York City right now. I'm praying every night for her safety. Hmm. Because if she's down in the Bronx and she's on 24-hour shifts. Hmm. And not only the, the brutality that they're having to deal with, but also the physical and mental exhaustion that they're having to deal with. I I did get a little bit of an emotional breakdown when I saw the videos that we've all seen now mm -hmm. of Mr. Floyd. And to me, it was disgusting. Mm -hmm. And there was absolutely no excuse for it. And it, the officer who did it and the officers who were involved, it's a perfect example of what I mean by using your power mm -hmm. and thinking you can get away with it, mm -hmm. which is the biggest thing that needs to change. But the generalization part of it is what hurts my heart still to this day. And it's the biggest thing that we need to continue to try to beat because we're using people struggle with the power aspect of it and they want to generalize everything. If one person's bad, they're all bad. If one, and it's not true. Um, you know, and unfortunately, even from the community you and I live, we can go up and try to have a conversation with somebody who lives in the, in, in the deep Lancaster City and they'll right away say, you're from Quarryville. You don't understand what we go through up here. Mm -hmm. Not even taking 30 seconds to try to understand my background. Mm -hmm. The fact that, have I witnessed it before? I have. I, I would never sit here and say I've never witnessed a black man being illegally pulled over by a white cop. Because I have seen it. I lived in York for years. And it happened right in front of me one time. And I, at, at that time, did I think about it? No. I, I just saw somebody get pulled over. But having looked back on it now, I'm like, there was a friend of mine that got pulled over because there was a very successful black man driving a white BMW, talking to a couple of kids who were leaving our building. And we as administrators all knew it was because he worked for the school. And a police officer pulled him off around the next block for no reason. And, we're, and at the time, I didn't think anything about it. I was like, wow, what, what did he do wrong? And I just kept going about my day. But I've seen it. I've had some of my athletes say to me, coach, I don't want to walk home tonight. Why not? I just don't want to walk home. All right, I'll drive you home. And then I never said anything to them, but as I got down their block, I see it. There's the police car sitting in the same street three nights in a row. I drove them home. Same spot. So now those officers might be stereotyping them mm -hmm. because they're walking home. What? There's no good, no good young man walking in the streets of York coming home from something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was coming home from basketball practice. How about you roll your window down and say, hey, young man, where are you coming from? Basketball practice, are you okay? Do you need a ride home? Mm -hmm. it, you know, I, and I pray because I don't know if there's any answers to fix it because people aren't willing to spend the time to listen. Right. And that's what scares me the most. And I think so often the danger is we get around these tables and we talk about change. And what we need to do is we need to invite some folks to the table that don't look like us. Correct. And then when those folks are present, 
then we can start to talk about how we might change. Correct. Because if we get a bunch of people together that all look the same and talk about change, how far are we really going to go? Correct. I, I need to hear from folks that don't look like me. And I need to hear from their heart. And I need to hear from their experiences and their past. And I need to lean into their hurt and empathize with them and then say let's do this together let's walk together and find some change in this and unfortunately i feel like a lot of the a lot of the process that are pro, protests that are going on are great they're great uh when i see videos of peaceful protests and people actually talking and communicating of all backgrounds police officers included of all backgrounds because i mean you can anybody say here right now and say there's, there's not one black officer out there? No. So you can't accuse the black, the officers from being racist if there's multiple uh, multiple backgrounds out there. But when I see the videos of destruction, mm. that's when I believe where I'm like, okay, well, the evil one is just trying to is just winning mm. in that in that atmosphere. Mm. Um, I mean, I saw a video last night, unfortunately, and I and I told myself last night when I went to bed, I'm going to start spending a lot less time on my phone mm. and a lot more time in a book or playing with my kids. Mm. Because I saw a video of New York Police Department officers. There was a huge gathering of people in the city of New York. I forget which street it was. Police officers come and just tried to get the crowd to start moving, so they started flashing their lights. Within two minutes, the entire crowd was throwing every bottle you can think mm. of, and the police had to back up, and there was 10 cars backing up. But you watch some of the people in the video, and it was clear as day. They were just out there for harm and hate. Mm. They're not trying to make any change. Mm -hmm. they, the only changes they're trying to get is how it's going to help them. So right. this whole movement of trying to defund the police off. No, please, I'm sorry. I want somebody answering 911. Mm -hmm. We need them out there for when we're in trouble. But does it need to be overhauled? Do we need to get some new, fresh leadership in there to start looking at some of our training? Yes. I mean, as an educator, are there bad teachers that I've seen in front of a classroom? Yes. Have they been moved out of their classroom to another? Yes. I've seen it. Have we all gone to churches and not connected with the pastor that's leading the congregation? Yes. You need to educate. You need to teach. You need to move. But it starts with the conversation. It starts with the people who are willing to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And if there's somebody in a leadership role that's not willing to have the conversation, then that person needs to be moved on from. Mm -hmm. That person needs to be replaced. Mm -hmm. And part of the bigger issue, too, is we've done so much. A lot of laws have been passed to protect people in positions that they're in. Yeah. And they and I'll, look, I'll use teaching as an example because I'll talk about teaching because that's my background. When it went from 10 years to from 10 years to 3 years, I was like, "Whoa. What? A teacher really hasn't even earned their stripes after 3 years." Because you haven't gone through one class of freshman, sophomore, junior, seniors. So you haven't experienced a whole school year of having the kids go through and watch their maturation process. And have you really taught every scenario in your classroom? No, you haven't. I wish education would allow teachers to spend time during their day to just talk to students and not hammer a book on them all day long. Mm. Again, my personal opinion. Because when you get, if we all look back on it and our educational background, what were the teachers we connected with the most? The teachers that we knew that cared about us because they were willing to ask us how our day was or they knew 
things that were going on at home. So when we walked in during the day, first thing in the morning, and it looked like we hadn't slept, they knew we hadn't slept, and they didn't drive homework down our throat or ex- accelerate the conversation to get us upset, to get us to storm out of their classroom mm. because they knew. And the teacher led with their heart. Yeah. And I just feel if more people would do that, and if we would allow people to spend the time to do that, we would start moving forward. Mm. There's too many people who want to hold on to the past and not let it go. And there's too many people who are not willing to move forward because they feel like their power is more important than understanding the heart of the person across the table. Hmm. And it kills me. Hmm. It kills me because I'm at a point now at 45 years old, I'm like, well, what can I really do? I'm an athletic director from Solanco. Like, what can I do to start moving things forward? And it's one of the biggest questions on my mind right now that I ask hmm. the Lord every day. Use me. Uh, I, I believe that he absolutely will. Uh, I think your past experiences, your upbringing, all of those things will come into play in the next season of our lives. I I find it amazing as I look across the landscape of our country. Sometimes I share this even on Sunday morning. I think some of the best leaders in our country today are actually coaching sports. When you think about what some of these college coaches have to do, and I think especially, and I and you know I'm a football guy, you're a basketball guy, but yeah. we can relate. Um, I look at these college coaches, football in particular. You have 90 guys on your roster yep. from all over the country. Yes, sir. Every different background. Every different culture, red, blue. I mean, and their job is to unite these people. Yep. And the best ones do it. Yes. And they do an incredible job of it. Yes. And I'm thinking, my goodness, all of all most of our politicians need to go spend time with these coaches. And watch. And watch how they do it. Don't they, talk. They unify people. Don't talk. That's right. Just go spend time watching just an entire day when a coach walks in the office do you think he's just there to coach the sport no they're putting out fires all day long mm-hmm. they're helping their kid get to graduation oh well what about the one and dunners with my recruiting background the part of recruiting that i love the most was turning over the stones and figuring out the kid that i was recruiting mm. would they fit our system because what kind of person were they And I remember it, there was multiple times when I was either at Springfield or I was at Slippery Rock, I would say to a parent, the last conversation I'd have to them when they would leave my office with their student athlete, I would say, there's one last thing I need you to think about on your ride home. If you cannot see this campus as your home, which means you're going to sleep, eat, learn, improve and give back that I don't want you. Hmm. And sometimes the, the father or the mother would look at me and go, you've been sending like eight months recruiting our son. And now and I'm like, I'm not because yeah, oh, we want you to come here. But if you can't see yourself here, it's going to be a bigger situation and we're going to butt heads a lot for you and me. So you've got to feel totally comfortable here because if you're comfortable here, we're going to get going with this thing to win basketball games. But if you can't see me being in your corner to guide you through the next the things you're going to do over the next four years of your life, then don't come. Right. And I'll help you open the door where you want to go. But you got to check all those boxes. Do I want you to come here? Absolutely. Do I think that you can turn this program around? Absolutely. And the race or the, the, the race or the nationality of the person never came into question. Right. 
and the best cultures in in sports have those pillars, like those five pillars you just mentioned. And every one of the players that are part of that program or culture can mention those five pillars. And right now we live in a country that's void of those pillars. Yes. You don't you don't have anything in these areas that we can unite our people around. We're not we don't have any leaders saying, "Hey, the United States, we're going to be known as this, 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 and this." And everybody in the country can say it, can unify around it, can unite around it, and can move forward. Right now, everything's just divisive, and and, and it's just tearing us apart at the seams, and it's sad. And a lot of it goes down to the foundation of things. Mm. Because what if we go back to, and I'm not a history person, and I, I try, and I struggle with a lot of the stuff, and you know, and Mike Hamill, another great person at mm-hmm. Solanco, there's times where I'll ask him a question history-wise just because I'm trying to figure something out. Mm-hmm. What was America's foundation? And you'll get all sorts of opinions. Mm-hmm. All sorts of opinions. The Declaration of Independence was written why? And you'll get all sorts of explanations. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the greatest things that if you go speak with somebody who has studied their, put their life around history and understanding and studying history. That's a person I want to learn from because they have the most knowledge of anybody that I would ask about history. But then you look at the way that our government is now and the way some of our leaders are now. They don't want to lean on the foundation. They want to push bills to adjust the the agenda, to adjust, put an asterisk in what the Declaration of Independence was Mm -hmm. out for Mm -hmm. or what you know, certain laws are made for. They want an asterisk by them. Because if this happens, this is what's going to... If you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. But maybe we can lean back and do this so we can make it softer on this, so we can make it softer. I'm not one who says lean, lead by a, by a fist and what... But the law is the law. Mm-hmm. And when people want to change the foundation and we've allowed them to do it, especially being... When the Lord was the foundation of education, mm-hmm. when the Lord was the foundation of this country, mm-hmm. when the Lord was a lot of the foundations of what the home stood for, mm-hmm. there's your biggest issue. Mm-hmm. And if you take the people who believe in a higher power, whatever your higher power belief is, you believe in a higher power compared to the people who have no belief whatsoever, they have no foundation. Mm-hmm. And they are trying to get everything their way. And I think one of the biggest mistakes, one of the biggest research things I've ever seen, which was the greatest PowerPoint I've ever seen, was um, Dave Meyer, Joyce Meyer's husband, mm. at a conference, did a, um, off-camera, did a PowerPoint lecture lesson on the history of America and was going about where God was the foundation of the Founding Fathers. But not only that, God was the foundation of the home and God was the foundation of education. And then he showed a PowerPoint that if I wish I had this one slide, because it showed when the law was changed and God was forced out of school, how it was on a rapid decline between um, dropout rates, um, violence in schools, um, teachers stepping over that line of becoming from what was known as a loco parentes in place of the parents to now befriending a kid and doing evil things mm-hmm. with a kid. Mm-hmm. It was so drastic that it was like if half of our government people even cared, they would work at this one slide. Mm. 
and see if we would backtrack and show where we made a mistake mm. and allow God to start leading us again, mm. we would start fixing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And if God was the center of the home, which is where I believe a lot of it has to start, mm -hmm. because where do we end up getting, in getting put into the situation? Me as a coach of a 15-year-old. Now imagine a 15-year-old coming up to the first day of practice and the illustration of them carrying their luggage to the airport. And they're leaving their house for three years. How much luggage do you think they have with them? Now I'm finally getting this kid at 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And I have to try to help change all the baggage that they've brought to the table. Unless you're willing to communicate with the kid, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But if the home was solid and the home things were being taught before the kid even walked into elementary school, we would just be able to continue to raise that kid. Mm -hmm. Male, female, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I just think that we've spiraled so far out of control because we allowed the foundation of a lot of things to be taken away. And people will not, don't want to look back on that. And when people want to look back on that, they want to say, they don't want to admit it that they made a mistake hmm. by removing. And now we're even having people want to push to take God's name off money. Yeah. Like, we, we have to get some leaders with experience. But when they don't have the experience, they're going to hire those behind them to lead their department because that's what they're experienced for with the same vision the same principles, the same foundation, and help move forward mm -hmm. rather than having money and power be the agenda. That's so good. There's this quote in the Old Testament. I think it's the book of Judges, and it says uh, over and over again, it's a theme in the book of Judges, the same line the writer repeats over and over and over again because he wants the reader to see the the line that holds the whole narrative to, of Judges together. And so he repeats it uh, throughout the book. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you remove God, you remove the foundation uh, from our homes, from our education, from, from our communities. Uh, all of the, the institutions had theological terms when they were created. Almost all of them did, the, especially the Ivy League schools. All of those things kind of gone, pushed aside now. There is no king in Israel, mm -hmm. and everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. And we can look outside our windows and see we're getting what we get because that's what we've done. And Well, I want to wrap up our time. I'm so thrilled that you came in today. Uh, I knew we could talk for a long time, and we have, and that's okay. I, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm thinking many will find this helpful and uh, encouraging in this day. Uh, and I really appreciate you, Anthony. Thanks so much for being with us today. I appreciate you thanking me, to asking me to come. And I apologize for the length, but when you ask a guy from the Bronx <laughs> to come in and talk, you're going to get an earful the whole time. But, I mean, I appreciate your time, and I appreciate your friendship more than anything. So. And me, you, as well. Thanks, Anthony. Thank Take you. care. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you on our next episode.